A little less than a year ago, I was battling a rather minor, in the grand scheme of things, a rather minor uh, health issue. And isn't it always interesting when a public speaker starts talking about their own health issues? You, you, you sit back and you think, oh, where are we going with this one? Uh, I was dealing with, uh, with, with a minor health issue that uh, basically my appetite was getting kind of turned upside down, left and right, and foods that I always enjoyed, I, I, I wasn't enjoying them as much anymore. The taste was going kind of haywire, and, and just it was, it was kind of a mess. So I, go to, I, I visited the doctor, and the doctor uh, recommended that I start taking just an over-the-counter medicine. And so I, 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 trying to be a good patient, I start taking this medicine, and I start to find that I'm getting really nauseous when I take this medicine and, and eat. But it, it, it was very early. I'd, I'd do it for a meal, and okay, that wasn't very good. And then I'd forget, and you know, and so long story short, I wasn't, I, I was still getting nauseous, but I wasn't sure if it was the medicine or not. Uh, so fast forward, uh, around that time, last May, uh, uh, our family, we had to fly down to the New Orleans area for Amanda's uh, grandmother's funeral. And there was a restaurant right, th- right near the New Orleans airport that I just loved. And I went to seminary in New Orleans, and it had been a long time since I'd eaten at this restaurant. And uh, so we made it a point to go there for lunch uh, after our flight landed in New Orleans. And so we go there, and I, I'm ready, and I'm taking my pill that I'm going to eat ahead of time so that there's no surprises, and I can just enjoy this food. And all of a sudden, I did not enjoy the food. Namely, we ate, and it was okay in the moment, but it still tasted a little funny. And then we started to drive home, drive to Amanda's parents' house, and I started to get so nauseous that I thought I was going to have to pull over and Amanda was going to have to drive. But I tried to power my way through it, and uh, we, we, we got to the house, and the worst of it was over. And then I, I finally started to realize, I'm going to stop taking that pill. Things have been really weird since I started taking that over-the-counter medicine. So I did, and all of a sudden, food started tasting fine again. Now, I don't say that to bash modern medicine. I don't say that to bash medical professionals who oftentimes uh, have, always have our best interests at heart. I say that just to say that sometimes we can do something that we think will help us to see and to treasure. As I wanted to treasure and to savor every taste of that food, we can take that pill that we think will help us to do it, And yet we can actually realize that that pill is causing us to not be able to taste and to savor that thing that we need. What we see in Luke chapter 4 is something where Jesus goes to Nazareth, to his hometown. And you would think the residents of his hometown, the people that he grew up with, would have this close inner access to Jesus. They would have everything lined up so that they, of all people, could celebrate Jesus and give him a royal homecoming, celebrating this one who is doing mighty works all throughout Galilee. And yet, we find that the pill that is keeping them from seeing and savoring the hometown boy who is the Lord is not a literal pill. But it was their familiarity with Jesus and the self-deception that they were under when it came to knowing their their own souls. What we're going to see in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30, is that Jesus brings life for the spiritually destitute, but spiritual self-deception will keep us from Him. Let me say that again. Jesus brings life 
for the spiritually destitute. But spiritual self-deception will keep us from him. Follow along as I read from verse 14 through verse 30 of Luke chapter 4. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. But we have heard you did at Capernaum. Do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. May God write these truths of his word these eternal truths upon our hearts. Two ways that we are going to navigate our way through this passage. First, good news for the spiritually destitute. And second, bad news for the spiritually self-deceived. Good news, initially, for the spiritually destitute. We remembered last week in verses 1 to 13, Jesus has been in the wilderness of uh, uh, wilderness and, and tempted by Satan, and he comes out of the wilderness and he starts to begin his public ministry. And we have a very, very brief snippet, a, a, a brief description of what Jesus' public ministry in Galilee was like. You see this in verse 14 and 15. I thought about just summing it up, and, and I, I could almost read the whole thing as just a summary. He's going throughout all of Galilee, and he taught in synagogues, and he was glorified by all. And you read this, and you think, wow, that sounds really impressive. Could we get more of that, Luke? Maybe some more details. What was he doing that was so impressive? What was he saying that caused him to be glorified by all? But Luke doesn't leave us to learn that. We'll see more of it as we go throughout the Gospel of Luke. But it is as if Luke leaves that, that story in Galilee and says, now I want to take you to Nazareth. We need to spend our time there. 
Nazareth was Jesus' hometown. You see this in verse 16 and verse 22. In verse 16, it tells us that he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, referencing his, his upbringing, his raising. In verse 22, the people marveled at him, but some said, hey, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this that little pipsqueak kid that was always hanging around with his dad, the carpenter? And now he's doing these things? He's speaking in the synagogue, and he's claiming himself to be able to heal the uh, blind and to bring, uh, bring freedom to the poor and, and all of these? What's happened to this kid? What Jesus is doing is that he is asserting himself as the Messiah. He's asserting that he has arrived and he's underscoring the significant work that he would do. Jesus has gone to the synagogue in Nazareth, as was his custom in various towns that he would go to throughout Galilee. He goes to the synagogue, he begins teaching. You see in verse 16, he opened the scroll, or verse 17, excuse me, uh, he opened the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he unrolled it and found the place where it was written. And I'll pause, I'm going to read what he read in just a moment. But, but in, in Jesus' day, just an FYI, they didn't have Bibles like we do that open up like a book. Uh, the, the books of the Bible were, were in scrolls. And so um, he opens the scroll and he rolls, unrolls it a little bit. And I don't know how big it was. The writing was probably pretty small because the, the, the material that the scrolls were printed on was in short supply. But he, uh, he opens it up and he goes about 85 to 90 percent of the way through the prophet Isaiah and then reads from what we now know as Isaiah 61. Now, when biblical authors first wrote these books under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that led them in writing these, they didn't assign chapter and verse numbers to these. These were actually assigned later to help us navigate it. And so instead of me opening a scroll this morning and turning about 88% of the way through the book and saying, okay, uh, turn to the part that starts with the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, thankfully we have verse and chapter numbers now. But Jesus opens the scroll and he looks before the whole audience in the synagogue. They're waiting on bated breath, waiting to hear from this hometown boy who has come and, 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 and has probably received a bit of a hero's welcome coming into home and coming into town. And he says, as verse 18 says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is quite beautiful. It's quite moving. You read these things and you think, okay, this is really impressive, but frankly, what all does it mean? Is this a, 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 a literal physical healing? He's going to take the, the financially poor and make them wealthy? He's going to take the literally physically blind and give them sight? He's going to take those who are enslaved, imprisoned, oppressed, captive to who knows what and release them from their chains? I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus, in quoting from Isaiah, he's quoting this language of Isaiah that was given in a metaphorical sense to talk about the spiritual healing and rescue that the people of Israel needed. When Isaiah the prophet, when he spoke these words, when he wrote these words uh, to the people of Israel, they were literally uh, uh, in, a, in a terrible spot spiritually. They had forsaken their Lord. They had walked away from Him. And they were enduring the pain and the consequences of their own sin. And so what they have found is that their cup, their cup did not run over, it was empty. 
Their hearts were downcast. Their souls were dried up as if a drought had come upon them and the Spirit of God had departed from them. They were without hope. They were empty and despairing. And what Jesus, or what Isaiah pronounces to the people is God will send a servant who will work on behalf of the poor, give sight to the blind, free the captive and the oppressed. This is a metaphorical way of describing the spiritual healing that Jesus brings. And this is way, and, and, and what we see here is that Jesus gives those who are spiritually in poverty the riches of knowing God through Him. He takes those who have no use for God, those who have denied Him, those who have turned their back on Him, those who in their heart, maybe they know God is out there, but their heart is full of anger towards Him. Jesus says, I've come for them that I might give them sight to see me. And so, if that is the condition of your heart today, maybe disinterested in God, or maybe angry with God, maybe you feel you have unresolved conflict or questions for God, Jesus opens up this scroll in Isaiah says, I invite you to come to me that your cup may be filled again. And so this is good news for the spiritually destitute. It's good news for those who realize they are blind. It's good news for those who realize they are poor. It's good news for those who know they are in captivity. And what interestingly Jesus does here is he then rolls up the scroll, as verse 20 says. He gives it to the attendant there. All, and look at the end of verse 20. All the eyes, or the eyes of all in the synagogue are fixed upon him. He has read these words, undoubtedly known to the people of Nazareth, anticipating a Messiah. And, and all eyes are on him after he reads them. And look at what he says in verse 21. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Church family, we need these reminders of Christ who has come. When your heart feels too impoverished to pray, the world seems too dark, remember that Jesus has come for your impoverished heart. When your circumstances, dear church, feel too dark and, and, and life has you blinded, it's taken you off of the path that you knew and left you out in the wilderness where it is cold and dark, know that Christ gives sight to the blind. He gives grace to all that they may see and set their gaze upon Him. He says, today this is fulfilled in me to all who will look upon me. You know what's interesting? I love, you guys have heard me reference this in sermons. I probably illustrate with it quite a bit, like talking about sunrises and suns. I, I love sunrises. I love going early in the morning down to the beach and just watching the sun just pierce the horizon and just the, 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 the sky just light up in all sorts of colors. You know what I've found, though? 
I don't go stare at the sun when it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon and it's in the middle of the sky. The sun's boring at noon, at 1, at 2. Sure, you might like it if it's been rainy for a week and it's been cloudy and, oh, finally we got a sunny day. But the sun has its beautiful, uh, uh, captive wonder about it whenever it's just coming in and piercing the darkness of the night. What we have the responsibility to see is that Jesus pierces the darkness that can envelop our souls and He gives us the grace of seeing the glory of God that has particularly come to us and is able to awaken us to sing of His wonders. But the danger that He shows us that we face is that our hearts lose sight of that sunrise and we actually go bored with Him as the sun continues to rise and go across the sky throughout the day. Jesus, His coming is good news for the spiritually destitute. And yet, for as wonderful as this prophecy of Jesus' fulfillment is, we must understand that that is not the sole emphasis of this passage. The question before us is, do we see Jesus as ones who are spiritually destitute, who see Him rightly? Or do we battle, perhaps even unknowingly, the dangers of spiritual self-deception? Even born of a familiarity with Jesus, as as if we're residents of Nazareth and have known Him for a long time. So we move on to verse 22 and following. And see bad news for the spiritually self-deceived. Look at the response to the people of Nazareth. Initially, seems like a, for the most part, positive response. Verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is, is not this Joseph's son? But then Jesus says something to them that's quite interesting. We need to understand the context of it a little bit. He says to them, doubtless, you you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, which apparently was a well-known proverb at the time. And he says, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Now we get to the rub of the matter. Jesus knows, and he's starting to expose the hearts of those in his hometown. Here's what I mean. Jesus didn't roll back into town with a list of grudges against people who wronged him throughout his whole life, and now he's the one in charge, and he's going to call accounts due. No, what he's doing is one who knows the people in his hometown and knows our hearts as well. He's showing us the danger that familiarity can have with him if we are not careful. Namely, he says, you've heard word of the miracles I've done, the phenomenal teaching I've, 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 shared that has confounded the scholars and confounded the experts and you've seen all of these great powers that i have that have been displayed in capernaum and in other places throughout galilee and now you come bring me here and you expect me to be the circus animal that performs while you politely applaud and celebrate me as this as this uh, great hero born of nazareth but what jesus shows nazareth and shows us is that we will only see and understand Him clearly 
when we see and understand our spiritual condition. He did not come to be adornment on the decoration of our lives, as if maybe He would be the shirt that we wear or the pretty necklace around our neck. He came that we might be born and find new life in Him. Namely, He came not to decorate our lives, but to give us new life to the spiritually dead. And this is what the people of Nazareth did not understand as they were saying before Him, do something like you did in Capernaum. Can we get a little of that here? Maybe a hometown discount? No, He says, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And to illustrate this point, to illustrate this point of what is wrong with the spiritual condition of the people in Nazareth, He uses two interesting, perhaps even a little obscure illustrations from the Old Testament. Look at these. You see this in verse 25 and through, through verse 27. So first he says, verse 25, starting to challenge the people of Nazareth, he says, in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. So you might be familiar with this story. It's if you want to make reference of it and go read it later, it's from 1 Kings chapter 17. The people of Israel, their hearts were hardened against God and, and, and a famine had come upon the land. And, and so now there, there was no rain for three years and six months. And so people are literally trying to scrounge up food and, 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 and guard their food and ration it out in order that they might live. And Elijah, the prophet of the Lord, is not sent to any of the people of Israel, but he's sent to this widow in Sidon, this widow named Zarephath. And Elijah goes to her house and he tells her, cook what you have, this very small ration of food, cook what you have and give it to me and God will meet your needs. And so the woman, with this small amount of faith, cooks what she has, bakes Elijah a little cake, and he eats it, and God meets her needs. What Jesus is showing the people of Nazareth is he's saying, you don't need a faith that you have where you appreciate me. You need a faith where your entirety of your life is laid on the line in trust in me. He's saying you need to see your spiritual poverty and you need to surrender entirely to me. Otherwise, you don't understand me. And by saying you don't understand me, Jesus is saying, and you don't know the God you profess to worship. So he's addressing the spiritual pride of the people of Nazareth with this first illustration. The second illustration, in verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. In this story, this was Naaman, a Syrian man, who was a man of great prestige and honor. He was high up in the Syrian military. 
And he had come down with leprosy, which is a terrible skin disease. And he comes down with leprosy, and there's also lepers in Israel. But Elisha, the prophet, in 2 Kings 5, he goes to Naaman, and he prescribes to Naaman, hey, you go get in these waters, and you will be healed of your leprosy. And Naaman initially is disgusted by the idea of it. A man of my stature, a man of my power, a man of my acclaim, and you're going to tell me to go get in these dirty waters, and that is how I will be healed of my leprosy? No thank you. But then in the story, Naaman realizes, I can't bargain with the leprosy that I have. It is only going to get worse. It is only going to get more painful. And it is ultimately only going to come about that it will destroy me. And so Naaman humbles himself and goes and gets in those waters and he is healed. And so what Jesus is showing his audience in Nazareth is he's showing them, you need your hearts to be changed in a manner by which your faith is entirely in me, not as ones who feel like your cupboards are full and you have no needs in the eyes of the world, but as ones who know spiritually you are empty and you are going to bake the, the, the little bit of food you have, the little bit of faith you can muster, and it is all going to be placed in me. And I get total control of your life. And then he's saying, and secondly, you are going to try to bargain with me as to the manner by which I will heal you. But here's the deal. I will not bargain with you in that way. You trying to bargain with me, the one who has come fulfilling Isaiah 61, is showing your self-deception. He said, the one upon whom I will look is the one, upon whom, the one who will humble himself and receive the prescription for healing that I give like Naaman did. And there's one other thing that's interesting to note. As the people of Nazareth are trying to understand all that Jesus is telling them, if you were to go look at Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and compare it to Luke 4, 18 and 19, the very next line after where Jesus cuts out, you see verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The very next line in Isaiah 61, 2, references that God will bring vengeance upon his enemies through this servant. Now Jesus cut it out. Jesus stopped right before it. Was Jesus softer than the Old Testament God? No. Jesus is pronouncing that I have come in this moment at this time to bring mercy of God. But what he's also showing his audience in Nazareth, remember, Nazareth, Galilee, Israel, occupied by Roman forces, non-Jewish forces. And they would be looking for him to drive out the Roman occupiers. And Jesus doesn't play that game with them. Jesus quotes these stories to say the problem is not Rome, the problem is Nazareth. And he quotes these stories to show them one other thing that, is, that, that could easily be overlooked, but I think that he wants us to see this. Look in verse 26. Elijah is not sent to somebody in Israel. He's sent to Zarephath. What's it say? In the land of Sidon. In verse 27, there are many lepers in Israel. None of them was cleansed, but only what? Naaman the Syrian. Jesus is showing these people of Nazareth, I did not come to be your good luck charm to drive out your enemies and build a self-contained, 
uh, 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 people who, who all their needs are going to be met in me. I came to build my glory even beyond the walls of Israel. And I have these Old Testament examples to testify to this. And so what do we make of this today? How do we process, how do we digest all of this? I think one of the big ways that we must consider is how does our familiarity with Jesus, how can it work against us if we are not hypervigilant? We can see promises in Scripture. We can hear stories of people healed of sickness. Of the, guy, the other guy in the church that got the job promotion. The brother-in-law and sister-in-law who their kids are excelling in school. Making honor rolls. Getting college scholarships. And our kids are seemingly wearing us thin. We can play these comparison games and we can say, Jesus, you did it in these people's lives. Won't you do it in mine? And we are no different than the people of Nazareth saying, hey, come bring, bring some of those Capernaum miracles my way. Or we tell Jesus, you know, I think I've got myself spiritually all figured out and I would just be really grateful if you would work in this manner for my sake. And Jesus says, the moment you think you have yourself all figured out is the moment you realize you have so much further to go. Day by day by day, we never graduate from the school of God's redeeming, resurrecting grace. Day by day, we check in to Gospel 101. And day by day by day, we have to be reminded that we once were spiritually poor. We once were spiritually blind. We once were captive to our sin and oppressed by all that would seek our, the destruction of our souls. And it is through Christ who has come. Our poverty has become riches. Our blindness has become sight. Our captivity has become freedom. Day by day by day, we never check out of the school of God's grace. Day by day, we check in and we need the reminder that by grace alone, we live. We never graduate from the school of God's grace. Lest we think that we do, Lest we start to tell Jesus, okay, here's what I would like for you to accomplish in and around and through me. Lest we do that. Because when we start to tell Him how He must act towards us, even by the way in which we think He's doing it towards other people, and He puts His foot down and says, not for you. We will either say, have your own way, God. I am your servant. Or we will join the chorus of those in Nazareth who when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Verse 
Verse 29 tells us they rose up, they drove him out of the town, and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Nazareth shows us that the grace of God is at the lowest level so that all can reach it. But those who stand tall will trip over it. Nazareth shows us that our responses by our human nature to Jesus will lead us to disgust towards Him if we will not recognize that we are living sacrifices day by day putting ourselves back on the altar of His service. Brothers and sisters, I don't want to be a Christian with no use for Christ. I don't want to be a church where the gospel is not vibrant and the power of the gospel is not at work in our midst. May we continually keep in mind that this Jesus, He will only be beautiful to us when we recognize that previously we could not see and we could not know. May our awareness of our own sin constantly be something that we are vigilant towards understanding, towards confessing, towards acknowledging, towards forsaking, so that we may treasure Christ all the more together. May our awareness of our need for our Lord drive us not towards bargaining with Him, but towards submitting under Him. May it drive us to the point where we don't look at Him and say, okay, Jesus, here's what I need You to come do. But may it drive us to the point where we say, Lord Jesus, here I am, having just been brought to life by You. Have Your way with me. See, here's the danger. That self-deception that thinks that we can start to dictate to Jesus what He ought to do, maybe born of years of familiarity with Him, the danger about that is that we come into His presence and when we encounter cam- uh, uh, counterfeit Jesuses, they go right along with the flow. Jesus wants to give you the best life He can give you wants to meet your wildest dreams, they go right with the flow there. But the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus who stands before us bringing life from the dead, He will be disgusting to our hearts if we dare come before Him and believe that we can set the terms of what it means to follow Him. And we can set the terms of what we expect of Him. But the good news of it, the good news of it, 
is that as we see this, and they wanted to kill him, they wanted to throw him off the top of a hill at the edge of town, he said, not yet. Not yet. He would have a death in mind. But it would not be a death only at the hands of those who despised him. It would be a death for those who needed to be brought to life by him. And that is the source of our hope. That is the source of our confidence.